Good to be here this morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to First Chronicles chapter 21. Far north director, not far out director. And uh, it is Canada, Greenland, and Alaska. And uh, we are privileged to work with missionaries across those areas. Great, great need across all of those areas. And, um, you know, Harvest Baptist Church is our home away from home. It's our first church home, our sending church still. And uh, we do have a church home in, in the Chattanooga area as well, but uh, it's always good to get here and, and be at Harvest also, and uh, we enjoy the time. As you are turning to First Chronicles 21 in your Bibles this morning, and we're talking about missionaries and all, I want to thank you, everybody who has ever put one of these in a missionary basket. You know what that is, right? A little hand sanitizer thing? I have one of my missionaries going to Greenland at the beginning of this year. They said, you know, we got like literally like a thousand of these little hand sanitizers and baskets. We have so many we don't know what to do with. It was at the beginning. It was like, it was like in January or February. I called him in March. I said, hey, what are you doing with all that liquid gold? Because <laughs> I could use some of that. Send some my way. And so uh, thank you for those who have done that. You notice it smells weird lately, too. What are they putting in that stuff anymore? I don't want to know. Anybody done with 2020? <laughs> I'm done with 2020. I know that uh, I know Tim said something about it not being winter yet. Listen, I will take like a thousand blizzards if we could just be done with 2020. Um, I like blizzards anyway, so <laughs> I don't know what you did on Friday, but I went for a hike, and so I enjoy the snow, I enjoy the cold. First uh, Chronicles chapter number 21 in our Bibles. First Chronicles chapter number 21, and. Uh, preached on Wednesday night from Acts chapter 4 here, and I mentioned then, it is very, very unusual for me to, uh, to preach from an entire passage. Uh, I usually preach from literally like a half of a verse, and that usually will take a whole service. We're going to look at 27 verses. I promise I will be done by noon Alaska time, all right? First Chronicles chapter number 21. And we're going to read verses 1 through 27, and I will go quickly and try to pay attention time best I can. In your bulletins, you can follow along in the, with the outline. I think we'll have it on the screen as well. And um, uh, choosing the lesser of two evils. It's not, it's not something we like to do, but I hope today I can lay the groundwork from the Bible to show it's something we do on a very, very regular basis and really are forced to do on a very regular basis. First Chronicles 21, beginning in verse number 1 and reading through to verse 27. Follow along as I read. If you would, please notice what the Word of God says. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So Satan provoked or tempted David to carry out a census in Israel. Now, we're going to find out this is not a full-blown census. They're going to only count those who are able to go to war. And we're going to notice that in the text, and we'll make mention of it a little bit later on. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people an hundred times so many and more as they be, but my Lord the king, are, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth the king, why doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he call, be a cause of trespass to Israel? So Joab gets it and he says, David, this is a mistake. Don't do this. 
They're all yours. The men who go to war will follow you. Don't number the people. Why are you going to do this? He recognizes it as a sin, a trespass against the Lord. Verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all, of, all they of Israel were a thousand, thousand, a hundred thousand men that drew sword. And Judah was four hundred threescore and ten thousand men that drew sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab, and God was displeased with this thing, wherefore he smote Israel. He was displeased with David's decision, not with Joab, but with David's decision to carry out this census, which wasn't even a full census, just how many men could go to war for David. David said unto God, Verse number eight, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So David is faced now with uh, God coming to him and saying, Look, these are the consequences. Here's the three punishments. Ever do that with your kids? Which, which one do you want? You've done wrong. Which of the three or which of the two do you want? And that's what God says to David. So Gad came to David and he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee, either three years' famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel, now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. And you might say, well, it would be easy because he, he picked three days because that's the least amount. No, that's actually God who is the most powerful of any of those has the most opportunity to do harm if he chooses to do so. We're going to find out David still picks it, but we're going to look at why. And it wasn't just because it was only three days as opposed to three months or, or uh, three years. And David... Uh, said unto Gad in verse 13, I am in a great strait. Let me now fall into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. Let me not fall into the hand of man. God, David said, you know what? I'd rather trust God's mercy than man. And that's why he chooses what he chooses. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men, God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it, and as he was destroying it, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and he said to the angel that destroyed it, it is enough, stay now thy hand. So in the middle of the judgment, God holds back. He does show mercy, and we'll talk about that. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, and David lifted up his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord, my God, be, upon me, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. 
Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set an all, up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons with him hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and he went out of the threshing floor and he bowed himself to David with his face to the ground and David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it to me, grant it me for the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said to David, take it to thee and let my Lord the king do as uh, that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meat. Offering, I give it all. And so Ornan said, no, I, I won't charge you a penny. It's all yours. You can have it. And King David said, Ornan, nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. I will not take the, that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave Ornan the, for, the, uh, for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. David built there an altar unto the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings, and Peace offerings, and he called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burning uh, of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into his sheath thereof. Our Father, I come to you this morning, and I, I pray that you will bless our time. I pray that you will speak to every heart, and that you'll work in every life. If somebody here does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, if they were to die today, they're not certain that they would be instantaneously and forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. We pray today that they would receive him by faith and be born again into the family of God. We pray that you speak to every Christian heart. God, we do again pray for our nation. We are in a strait between two. And God, we need you to intervene upon our behalf as you have done so many times in the past. We're asking, we're pleading, God, for your mercies upon our nation. We have no right by which we come to you this morning to ask this, but we know that you're a great and merciful God. And so we're asking once again, God, be merciful to us. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said a long time ago, uh, uh, when faced with choosing between the lesser of two evils, choose neither. Now that sounds like a really good idea and it sounds like a good plan and it would work in an ideal world where there is no sin. The problem is we don't live in an ideal world where there is no sin. We live in a world that is fractured by sin. We live in a world that is filled with sinful people, myself included, all of whom are desperately wicked and have desperately wicked hearts. I don't just make that up. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Imagine that. There's a lot of wicked things in this world, but God says my heart is deceitful above every one of them and desperately wicked who can know it. And because you and I live in such a world where it is fractured by sin... Choosing the lesser of two evils is sometimes better than choosing nothing at all. In fact, there are times when if you and I didn't choose the lesser of two evils, by default we would allow the greater evil to win. 
I think probably most of us at one point or another have had to come to a place where we had to choose between the lesser of two evils. Let me try to illustrate in a really simple way. My family and I do a lot of traveling. Uh, we, we travel thousands and thousands of miles on a regular basis. Uh, 2020 excluded, not so much in 2020, but we still travel a lot. I just got my mileage report from last month, and my phone app told me I traveled thousands of miles for ministry purposes last month alone on an off month. And so we travel a lot. We travel long days. We, we drive probably at minimum 10 to 12 hours a day, sometimes as many as 16 and my, my teenage girls claim that it is a documented fact. I haven't Googled it to find out. But they claim it is a documented fact that after 12 to 16 hours in the car without stopping, you can die from starvation. <laughs> you got teenagers too. They'll be like, Dad, I'm starving. Starts off with, I'm hangry. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> Trying to make up time here. You do know why every dad it doesn't want to stop for at the rest stop or for gas or anything else. Because every time you stop, it takes you another two hours to, to pass all those people you've been working so hard to pass. <laughs> and they're like, Dad, I'm starving. So finally you come up on this exit, Podunk Collar. It's one of those great exits. It's got one gas station, Bubba's. Eat here and get gas. That's what the sign says. I mean, literally. You walk in above us, and he's got hot dogs on those little spinner things. Who thought that up? What are those made out of? I mean, they've been there for months. And, you know, if you're not down with Bubba's, they got a really high-class restaurant in the same parking lot, the BK Lounge. They sell a meatless Whopper. Really? A meatless Whopper? At least put a little beef in that thing. You remember the commercial, I'll date myself. Where's the beef? I don't want a soy burger. And I sure don't want one of the little dogs spinning on the spinning wheel. But my girls are hungry, they're hangry, and they're starving. And it's a documented fact, Dad, I'm going to die. The truth of the matter is, we're all dying. If you're not dead, you're dying. That's a biblical fact. So, what do you do? Well, if I choose none, my girls are going to die in the back seat. That's going to be hard to explain at the next meeting. So, what do you do? Well, you choose between the lesser of two evils. It's either Bubba's hot dogs or it's the meatless Whopper. Either way, it's the lesser of two evils. Let me see if I can give you a biblical illustration of choosing between the lesser of two evils. In Genesis 14, we'll not turn there, there came a day in Abraham's life when he found out that the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah had been at war. And Sodom and Gomorrah didn't fare very well, and they'd been taken captive. You say, who cares? It's Sodom and Gomorrah. Who cares if they're taken captive? They're wicked nations. Who, who really cares? Well, Abraham cares. Why does he care? Abraham cares because there's a guy named Lot who's living in, Go in Sodom. Who's Lot? He's Abraham's nephew. What is he beyond that? Who does he represent? He represents the next generation. 
I know and you know that Lot hasn't made very good choices up until this point. We have the benefit of looking back and knowing that he doesn't really ever make any good choices, but Abraham doesn't have that benefit, and I do believe that Abraham was holding out hope, just like every parent who has a prodigal holds out hope and says, I hope they're going to make the right decision. And so he has to make a decision. What do I do about Sodom and Gomorrah being taken into captivity? And, and if I do anything so that I can help Lot, it will automatically be seen as me allying myself with these wicked nations and these wicked leaders. And who, as God's child, wants to be the ally of the king of Sodom or the king of Gomorrah? Nobody wants to do that in their right mind. So what does he do? Well, he can do nothing. But if he does nothing, Lot surely lives in captivity. There's no hope, right? So he has to do something. What does he do? He chooses the least of the evils. And he decides to go in and rescue Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Now to prove that he doesn't want to be allied with Sodom and Gomorrah, when the king of Sodom offers him a reward, he says, I won't even take your shoe latchet. Keep your shoelaces, bud. I'm good. I wouldn't want anything from you. But I had to rescue the next generation. And so I had to choose the lesser of two evils. He understood that to do nothing meant there was no hope for his nephew, the next generation. And I think that Abraham understood he wanted God's mercy to prevail on Lot's life. He wanted him to get a second chance. And by the way, God is the God of second chances. And I don't know about you, but in 2020, as a political junkie, probably an addict, I am as sick of politics as I have ever been in my entire life. I am so done with the election season. I'm ready for it to be over. And as I have thought about this election, and actually as I have thought about previous elections, 2016, that wasn't such a great one either, to tell you the truth. The one before that wasn't such a great one. The one before that, it was so bad, my family and I packed up and said, we're going camping for a week, we can't even be around people. So it's been bad for a while. And, and I've thought about this and I thought, what do I do? How do I cast my vote? Because I sure don't want to ally myself with, honestly, either person at the head of the tickets. So what do I do? Do I do nothing? Well, that would disrespect my son who serves as a United States Marine and is willing to die so that I can have a right to vote. So I can't do that. Do I write somebody in? I honestly thought about writing my own name in. It'd be really cool to have somebody vote for Tony Balava for president. But like, yeah, somebody voted. I, I was on the ballot once. Thought about that. And I thought, well, that's silly. That, won't, that, that would be like not voting. So what do I do? Well, for me, it came down to choosing the lesser of two evils. My wife and I, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, I guess now at least two weeks ago, stood in an hour and a half line in Tennessee and cast our votes early because we can do that in Tennessee. And the truth of the matter is, 
I wasn't excited about voting for either person. But I decided I had to do something because I have children, the next generation. I've got a grandson. I would like my grandson to be able to live in a country that I've lived in that has the freedom to meet in church like we meet today. That has the freedom to travel from state A to state B. You do realize we're, we're actually losing that right right now in front of us. I'd like, for, I'd like for that to change. And I'd especially like it to change. It's hard for me to, under, to really wrap my mind around it, but I've already run over half my race. But my grandson... He's only a year old. And if God tarries, he's got a long race. And I don't want it to be hard or oppressive. And I want him to enjoy freedom and liberty. So what do I do? I choose the lesser of two evils. I, 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 I look at what is before me and I thought... God, how can I cast my vote in such a way that you can show the most amount of mercy? And I spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about this and praying about this and, and looking at Scripture. I'm, I'm going to tell you, uh, it, it, it was so difficult for me. The last election, 2016, I had a friend come to preach who was, who was all on board for one of the candidates, and, and, and I was not on board for one of the candidates. And I literally said to him, I said, listen, I, I know that you are for candidate X, but you are my guest. And if you mention him in good light in my pulpit, I will invite you to leave immediately. I ended up voting for candidate X. <laughs> But that's how serious it was for me, and that's how difficult it was for me. And I've come to a place where I, I recognize that while I put my little check mark near a name, really I'm voting for policies, not a person. And so I look at the policies and I ask myself, God, through which policies can you show the most amount of mercy? So if the king of Sodom says, I'm for killing babies. And the king of Gomorrah says, yeah, I'm not for killing babies. I think God can be more merciful through the king of Gomorrah. If the king of Sodom says, I want to give your tax dollars to Planned Parenthood to help kill babies and sell their body parts, and the king of Gomorrah says, yeah, I'm not for that, I think God can be more merciful through the king of Gomorrah. If the king of Sodom says, I am for destroying the family and the home and redefining the family as God defined it, and I'm just going to take upon myself to just define the family as I like it to be. And the king of Gomorrah says, no, 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 I think we should stick with what's worked for over 4,000 years. I think God can be more merciful through the king of Gomorrah. If the king of Sodom says... I want to destroy the Constitution and install judges that will issue edicts from the bench rather than just judge law so that I can get my desired policies through, including, by the way, unless your head is in the sand, not going to church, not singing, not congregating, not talking about Jesus. 
And the king of Gomorrah says, no, no, I'm going to let you congregate, and we're, we're good with that, and you can do church. I think God can be more merciful to the king of Gomorrah. So for me, when it comes down to it, if I look at it that way, and I exclude the people, because let's be honest, the policies outlast the people all the time. All the time. We are still living under the policies of several presidents before me. In fact, we're still living under policies of presidents that were in office before I was born. The policies always outlive the people. So I look at the policies and I say, God, through which policies can you show the most amount of mercy so that my children and my grandchildren can enjoy liberty and freedom, can congregate, can tell people about Jesus without fear? And in that, yes, I do have to ally myself with the lesser of two evils. But I want us to understand something. Please, please try to reason this out. Understand that if you were on the ballot, or I was on the ballot, and the Apostle Paul was on the ballot, Paul was a pretty good guy, right? I mean, touching the law, blameless. That's what he says in Philippians. Pretty good guy. Probably the best missionary church planner in the history of forever. So if Paul was on the ballot, and you were on the ballot, or I was on the ballot, guess what? I still have to choose between the lesser of two evils. You call him Paul evil? I'll give you Paul's words. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's what Paul said about himself. Here's what I want us to understand. Jesus has never been on the ballot for president of the United States. And every time I have to vote for a sinner, I have to choose the lesser of two evils. It's really that simple. I know we don't like to frame it that way, but that is actually the truth. Hard to escape. And so what I want to do is look at this text. And I want to come at this text, and I'm going to try to move very quickly. I spent a lot of time on this introduction, and we're going to spend, uh, go through the text a little bit quickly. But... I want to ask this question. How did we get to this place? How did we get here? Because if we know how we got here, we might be able to back up and head a different direction. I think that's a better question. How is it that I'm forced to vote between a, a, a reality TV star and a guy who's done nothing for 47 years? I mean, that's the choice, right? You're fired! Okay. How did, how did we get there? How did we get to this place in our nation? If we can figure out how we got here, we might be able to get out of here. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get out. So let's take a look at the text and see if we can't learn from David how he got there and how he got out. Number one, notice with me, if you would, please, the crime David executed. The crime David executed. It was simply this. Go number the people. Go number the people. Some may say, well, what's so wrong with numbering the people? I mean, we do that even here, right? We, we take a census. Our Constitution even says we're supposed to take a census. What's so wrong with numbering the people? 
let's understand that this was not a full census. Who was numbered? Only those who could go to war. Well, was there a war going on? There was not. It was a time of peace and prosperity. So why number the people who can go to war? There's only one logical conclusion. It feeds David's pride. This is how many men I got working for me and who will go to war for me. No wonder David concluded in verse 8, this was a great sin and very foolish. No wonder Joab as a general was against it. Understand that God lists as the top of his list of seven abominations, pride, number one. A Scottish preacher said this, pride is the ground in which all other sins grow and the parent from which all other sins come. And David's sin was pride, the, the, the nation is so well off that David says to his top general, hey, go count the people. And by the way, it wasn't just Joab. There had to be a contingency of people that went. Somebody had to pay for that. Who paid for that? Let me give you a clue. Tax dollars. That's who paid for it. The people who were being counted. It's always easier to spend other people's money. It seems like David has nothing more important to do than to send his top general off to count the people so his pride can be filled and spend other people's money to do it. He's got tax dollars to waste, time to waste, energy to waste. He's not worried about anything. There's nothing more pressing on his agenda than to count the people who can go to war for him. That's the best he can come up with. It reminds me of what the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. A lot of people think that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin of sodomy. I would imagine if I would ask you to raise your hands and say how many people would agree that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin of sodomy, a lot of hands would go up. But Ezekiel tells us there was another reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. I would contend that sodomy was part of God's ongoing judgment of the nation because of something else that was going on way previous to that. Ezekiel 16, verse 49, says this. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Watch. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her, in her and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Does that sound like any place you know right now? Sound like what was going on in David's land at that day? Nothing better to do? Go see how many people can go to war for me. I remember, I remember when the Supreme Court ruled. By the way, just because the Supreme Court says it doesn't nullify God's word, the family is still the family. But I remember when the Supreme Court ruled and they said, we're going to do away with God's definition. We're going with our own Marriage is marriage. It doesn't matter what you're married to. And, and by the way, people said, if you let this happen, people will start marrying their computers and their dogs. Uh, it's happening. What is that? Read Romans 1. That's God's judgment. That's, read Romans 1 sometime. One of the worst judgments God can issue against the nation is basically this. 
You want to do it your way and not my way? Fine, go ahead. You remember what he says about the the people in Romans chapter 1? God gave them up to their own wickedness. He's basically said, "You, you want to do it that way? Go ahead. Go ahead. You want to kick me out of your government, out of your schools? Go ahead. You, you want to you silence the church and tell Christians they can't speak about Jesus? Go ahead. Fine. Have it your way. This is how we got here. This is why I have to vote for the two, between the two candidates I have to vote for. Fullness of pride. Idleness. Fullness of bread. We got nothing better to do. So what do we do? Well, we follow David's lead. I see, the, I see the crime he executed, but number two, I see the confession he expressed. Verse number eight. I have sinned greatly. I have done very foolishly. The parallel account in 2 Samuel 24, verse 10, says that David's heart smote him. He was convicted of his sin. He didn't just list off his sin he didn't just, you know, look and say, well, that wasn't, that wasn't such a great idea. I have sinned greatly. This was, this was a great sin. This was very, very foolish. He was a fool for what he did. I remember, I remember coming home one day. Caleb was very young. Our son was sitting on the couch, and, and it was early in the morning already, and, and we were living in Quebec at the time, and my wife had a habit of saying to the kids, knock off the foolishness, knock off the foolishness. And uh, I came in the house and Caleb was sitting kind of dejected and clearly he was um, in timeout, I guess. <laughs> sitting there on the couch. I looked at him and I said, what'd you do? He said, I was being foolishness. <laughs> I think that's what David is saying. This is very foolish. He understands the enormity of his sin. So much so that, think about this, when he sinned against Bathsheba and, against, and had her husband killed and sinned against her family, he said, I have sinned, right? He doesn't make light of it. He says, I've sinned. But now he says, I have sinned greatly. This was very foolish. Why is he so much more intense about this sin? Because this sin touched 70,000 lives. I know the other sin touched a lot of lives, but this one touched 70,000 lives. And I see the confession that he expressed, and I'm, I'm going to tell you until the church, not the government, not the lost people of this world, till the church say, you know what, we have been very foolish and we have sinned greatly because we have not been salt and light. We let this happen. When we decided we're not supposed to interact with government, Read your Bible. The people of government or the people of God have always interacted with the people of government. Started with Abraham, Moses. We're going to talk about that tonight. I've had the privilege to sit with some of our senators and our congressmen through the years. I'm going to tell you one of the most important things I ever do any year is is to get to Washington, D.C. and sit with a senator and congressman and pray with them and encourage them from the Bible to do right. Say, do they always do right? No. But I did what I was supposed to do. I I see the confession he expressed. I see the consequences David encountered. You know, you say, well, he confessed. There shouldn't be any consequences. No, God is just. He has to judge sin. There's always going to be consequences. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? There's always going to be consequences. And in the consequences that are set before David, God does leave open an avenue of mercy. He says, look, you can have A, B, or C. And by the way, not choosing was not an option. And by the way, there was no room for a write-in. Choose A, B, or C. I think before us are the consequences of our sin, and God says choose A or B. And so there were these two consequences that were set before David. I think, really, that in this election and for several elections now, the, the candidates set before you and I as citizens of the United States of America are the consequences of the church failing to be salt and light, failing to get out and give the gospel to our neighbors, failing to preach the word on a regular basis, the apathy in our churches and the unconcerned for living a Christian life. I think this is the consequence. Notice number four, the choice David embraced. The choice David embraced. David said, I'm in a great strait. I can remember, I, I, I shouldn't do this to Caleb. He's not here. and He's a Marine now. He'd probably kill me 10 different ways and I wouldn't even know until I got to heaven. But I, it was always Caleb. I'd be like, Caleb, okay, you did wrong. Choose A or B. <laughs> He'd be like, no, oh, no, no, Dad. I don't want to choose. You choose. And I'd be like, no, Caleb, you have to choose. No, Dad, I don't want to choose. Dad, Caleb, if you make me choose, I'm going to choose both. He'd <laughs> be like, okay, Dad, I'm, I'm going to choose. <laughs> Notice the choice David embraced. He said, I'm in a great strait. I don't want to choose. But let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? Because his mercies are very great. David said, you know what? I'll go with God. Because I believe God can be merciful. Three years of famine, that'll weaken the land. It'll make us weak. It'll, be a, it'll make us susceptible to enemy invasion and occupation. I don't want to go there. Three months before human enemies? No, that's, that's not going to leave a lot of hope. Three days before and under the sword of the Lord? Actually, the most powerful of the choices as far as able to do destruction? David said, yeah, I'll go with that one. Why? Because I'm going to trust God will be merciful. And so David embraced, I think, the wisest choice. For me, the wisest choice is to go with the person who doesn't want to kill babies, wants to uphold the sanctity of marriage, wants to, wants to allow us to live in, in a way that we carry out our Christian life according to the Bible. For me, it seems like that's the best choice. It's still the lesser of two evils when I attach it to a person. But I like the policies a lot more because I think God can be merciful through those. Notice the contriteness that David evidenced. The contriteness that he evidenced. I, I, I see it in verse number 16. David lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven having a drawn sword in his hand. He stretched it out over the Jerusalem. He's getting ready. He's got his sword over Jerusalem. He is going to destroy the capital. And David shows up dressed in sackcloth and falls on his face before God. 
hey, church, we better, we better fall on our face before God pretty soon. Sackcloth. In the Old Testament, it's an outward picture of the inward condition of the heart. David's heart was broken. It was rent. It was under co uh, conviction. This is the contriteness that David evidenced. His heart is truly broken by his sinful choice. And I'm simply saying, until you and I decide that, 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 you know what, we have been very, very foolish and we have done great wickedness by not being salt and light in this world and giving people the gospel on a regular basis every chance we get, until we are broken by that, we're gonna end up with the same consequences over and over and over again. God doesn't do core curriculum where you get to pass even if you fail. You repeat until you pass. Until you get a passing grade. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the compassion that David exhibited. Verse number 17. David said, is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered, even I, it is that has sinned and done this evil. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, O Lord, my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on the people, that, the plague should, that they should be plagued. If you were to read 2 Samuel 24, you would find out that when, when God allowed Satan to come and tempt David to number the people, God was angry with Israel. I don't know exactly why, because God doesn't tell us exactly why and what Israel had done, but he was angry with Israel. And when he became angry with Israel, he said he was going to allow Satan to tempt David to number the people. I, I bring that out to say this. David knew that, and he could have reasoned, it's as much the people's fault as it is mine. And we could look around and say, you know what? I'm trying to do right, but the rest of the country is doing wrong, and it's as much their fault as it is mine. But David understood something. I did wrong. And I've got to make it right. And you know what, church? I've done wrong. And if nobody else in this auditorium gets it right, I still got to make it right with God. Why? Well, I got kids and a grandson. Yeah, half my race is over. But theirs is just starting. I see young people here today. My heart breaks. I got two daughters getting ready to start college. I see the worry in their eyes. I sense it in their attitudes. They wonder what kind of world they're going to enter into. They got hopes and dreams for the future. They look around and they say, what kind of future is there? Well, as dad, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure God can show mercy. Everything I can. And I see that in David as well, in the commitment he evinced. evinced. Notice this. Ornan said to David, hey, listen, you need a place to build an altar? Take my threshing floor, it's yours. 
You need, you need something to offer? Take my oxen. They're yours. You need something to build the fire? Take my tools. You can burn them. David said, oh, no. Oh, no. I'll not offer to God anything that doesn't cost me something. And he paid him 600 shekels of gold. That was a lot of money. How much money was it? Well, without inflation, it would be $600,000 today, without inflation. There's been a little bit of inflation over the last several thousand years. Without inflation, 600000 It was a lot of money. But ultimately, it's not the money, is it? Because God's really not interested in money, is he? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. He owns the gold under the hills. He created it. He owns it. He doesn't need my, my money out of my wallet. He's interested in my heart. Guess what? My wallet is attached to my heart. How do I know that? Well, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what I do with my treasure is a good indication of where my heart is. David said, I'll give you $600,000. Don't let it be missed. David was saying, look, at whatever it takes, I'll do it so God can show mercy. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to do whatever it takes so God can show mercy? And I'm not even talking about showing up to vote on Tuesday now. I'm talking about showing up to tell somebody about Jesus on Wednesday. I'm talking about showing up for prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I'm talking about showing up for church on Sunday. Whatever it costs, God, so you can show mercy. Notice the culmination David experienced, and I'm done. I love this. I love this. Because this is, this is so like God. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into a sheaf thereof. I don't know about you, but I love that. What happened? David said, I, I, I want to I wanna take the route that God can show the most amount of mercy through. He did everything possible so God could show mercy. What happened? God extended mercy. I don't know about you, but I want to do everything possible so God can extend mercy on this nation. You say, ah, the nation's gone too far. Really? Worse than Sodom? Worse than Gomorrah? Worse than in Noah's day when God saw the, world, the earth that it was only wicked continually? So wicked God can't pour out a second chance? God is the God of second chances. I love the part in the Bible where it says that Samson, when he was, when he was in bondage under the Philistines' rule, that his hair began to grow again. Second chance. <laughs> I love when Peter went out and he said, I go fishing, and he brought a whole bunch of other people with him, and then Jesus met him on the shore with a, with a meal, and he said, hey, Peter, feed my sheep, second chance. I know God will give me a second chance because he says, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you my, your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I'm begging God, not for what we deserve, but to give us mercy. And I have no right to ask him that if I don't do everything possible 
to allow him to, to, to work through channels through which he can show the most amount of mercy. Don't disrespect anybody who's willing to die so you can have a right to vote on Tuesday by not showing up. And when you cast your vote, you just ask God, through which policies can you show the most amount of mercy? If you do that, I'm convinced we get it right. We get it right. Am I thrilled about it? No, absolutely not. Do I wish there were a different guy? Yes. But until Jesus is on the ballot, I'm always stuck with the lesser of two evils. Always, even if it's Paul, the chief of sinners. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And oh God, we need it. And I pray now that as we have a, a song of invitation and we're led in that, that maybe the plan, piano will just play for a moment, whatever, whatever our brother chooses. If God's spoken to your heart. You do business with him in just these moments as you choose. You can come to the altar. You can do business with God where you stand.